0: Thank you for tuning in today and welcome back to another episode of The Source. I'm your host Zan Raza. Before I start this interview, I would like to share with you an important development. Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Glenn Greenwald recently released a video in which he documents in great detail with ample of evidence how the US government and social media corporations are censoring or suppressing voices that are providing an alternative view to the war in Ukraine. The link to this video can be found in the description below. Therefore we urge all of our subscribers and people watching this video. Also, to join our alternative channels on Rumble, Telegram and our podcast called Podbean. Even if you don't want to leave YouTube, please just join these channels as a precaution. The links to these channels can be found in the description below. Today, I'll be talking to Dmitry Skars about the latest developments in the war in Ukraine. Dimitri Dyskares is an independent journalist and lawyer who specializes in human rights, class actions and international law. In 2020, he landed for the Green Party leadership in Canada, finishing second. Dimitri, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me back again. I would like to start this interview with the Black Sea Grain Initiative, or the Grain Deal, an agreement between Russia, Ukraine, Turkey, and the United Nations that allows Ukraine, one of the world's largest grain exporters, to use the Black Sea for its grain shipments. That agreement expired on July 17, 2023. According to the Tagesschau, Germany's leading primetime news program, Russia is responsible for the collapse of this agreement and the suffering and hunger of millions of Africans that may result due to it. In its July 20th segment, the German Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock was quoted as saying, quote, "This is an attack on the poorest people in the world." Unquote. Before we get to the African-Russian summit, which took place in Saint Petersburg on July 27 and 28. What do you think Russia left this deal, especially given the disastrous consequences it could have on the most vulnerable people in the global south due to rising food prices?
1: Well, I understand that the Russian government's position, and there seems to be a good deal of evidence to support it, is that the deal was uh, not simply designed to facilitate uh, Ukrainian exports of key agricultural products, but also to facilitate Russian exports of key agricultural products. And sanctions that had been preventing Russia from exporting uh, grain and uh, fertilizer, uh, sanctions imposed by the West, continued to effectively impede the export of these products from Russia, even after Russia uh, agreed to allow the export of Ukrainian grain. Uh, And so Russia finally got fed up uh, and said, you're not keeping your end of the bargain, uh, and therefore we're not going to continue with this deal. Um, There was also some uh, concern that the uh, I don't I I, myself have not seen, I would say, credible and compelling evidence to back this up. But there was a secondary and unsubstantiated concern that to some degree, these grain shipments were being used as a cover for arms shipments. Uh, But I think really the principal reason uh, was the the fact that this was supposed to be reciprocal, and it, turned, it out, turned out to be a one-sided deal for Ukraine. And the other thing that one must bear in mind, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, the lion's share of these Ukrainian grain exports were not going to uh, uh, poor countries in Africa. Uh, by far, I understand the largest share was going to Spain, uh, where it was being used to basically uh, feed uh, pigs for uh, the upkeep of Spain's... Uh, uh, industry in hamon uh you know a, a very important industry for that particular country and uh, you know and other european countries as well were absorbing a very significant part of the ukrainian grain exports so uh to a large degree the west is exaggerating to what uh, to what extent the uh, the global south was dependent upon these exports and, I, and the other thing i'll say is that russia is offering uh, to, uh, provide free, uh, significant quantities of grain to the, uh, countries in Africa that would be worst affected by this. Uh, so at the end of the day, uh, Zane, I think if these sanctions weren't in place to begin with, and they were never approved by the United nations, uh, the West has, uh, you know, an extraordinary habit of, uh, imposing unilateral non UN approved sanctions on countries that they deem undesirable. This wouldn't be a problem. Uh, but the problem started with the imposition of sanctions that have, have effectively impeded the exportation of Russian agricultural
0: products. I want to stick to the Tagesschau and their reporting, as it's one of the most watched programs in Germany when it comes to daily news. They commented on the African-Russian summit in their 27 July segment by stating that the summit was a way for Putin to shore up political support in the United Nations, where the African Union has 50 votes, since Russia, according to Tagesschau, has, quote, Hardly any supporters, unquote. Further, more in the segment, they stated that almost all African states attended, but only 21 leaders and head of states attended, which is way below the last summit in 2019. Putin, on the other hand, which you just mentioned, announced to maintain grain supplies to Africa and even promised to provide free grain to six African countries. Is Russia's position in Africa faltering? And is this, as the put it, a way to show up political support? How would you evaluate the summit? Well, as I understand it,
1: only seven countries of Africa were unrepresented. You you indicated the number of African countries that sent heads of states. Uh, A significant number of other African countries sent uh, delegations and were represented at the summit, even though their heads of state did not attend. So uh, the vast majority of African countries were in fact uh, represented at the summit. Um, And uh, furthermore, uh, it's important to understand that uh, this is despite the fact that the West is applying very considerable pressure on these African countries not to go. And the West has had typically, you know, significant economic levers to use to apply that pressure. So I think it's remarkable that as many countries were represented at that summit, either by heads of state or lower level delegations, uh, despite this extraordinary pressure. Uh, and the other thing, you know, I just did a speaking tour on uh, on the uh, Ukraine war in uh, Canada, Zane, and part of my presentation was to uh, discuss about this whole concept of isolation of Russia um, in the context of the actual statistics. Now it's true if you look at the voting at the United Nations General Assembly in terms of condemnation of what Russia did, there is widespread rhetorical support, uh, shall we say, for condemning Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But if you actually look at a map of the countries that have imposed sanctions on Russia, uh, outside of the West, almost no country has imposed sanctions on Russia. And in fact, a close trading partner, uh, the entire, almost the entirety of Latin America has not imposed sanctions on Russia. Almost the entirety of a- Africa, mo- the vast majority of Asia hasn't imposed sanctions on Russia. And even in North America, Mexico has refused to impose sanctions on Russia. Mexico just refused to attend a summit Uh, that Saudi Arabia peace summit that Saudi Arabia is organizing on the grounds that Russia wasn't invited. Uh, And this is, as I say, a close trading partner and ally of the United States and Canada. And the same goes for weapons transfers. The vast majority of countries in this world have not sent weapons to Ukraine, uh, despite uh, very considerable pressure being applied, particularly on Latin American countries to do that. Uh, So if you look at what uh, countries are doing in terms of concrete action to take one side or the other. The vast majority of countries have uh, taken a position of neutrality and continue to have a robust economic, not robust but significant, uh, uh, economic and political relations with Russia. That's that's the that's the reality, and and that that's been the case throughout the uh, uh, the period of the invasion.
0: I would like to switch to the developments taking place on the battlefield in Ukraine. On July 28, Ukrainian President Zelensky posted a video showing a group of soldiers holding a Ukrainian flag, saying they had seized back control of the village of Stramoyarsky in the Donetsk region. The Ukrainian president congratulated his troops on reclaiming the village, and Western commentators called it a significant breakthrough in its ongoing counteroffensive. How would you assess this victory? Are the Ukrainians now finally beginning to break through the Russian lines?
1: No not at all. And this is uh, a much ado about nothing. This village apparently had had I stress, uh, somewhere in the range of 200 homes it was a quite small uh, community. Uh, it has been raised to the ground by artillery. Uh, it is very difficult as a result of that for either side to actually hold it for any significant period of time because uh, the village is within range of the artillery of the both the Russian and the Ukrainian forces and there really is nowhere to hide. And in fact, the CNN, uh, CNN, a very pro-NATO, pro-Ukraine media outlet in the United States, uh, just wrote an article saying entitled that those that very phrase "Nowhere to Hide," and they interviewed Ukrainian soldiers who are at the front line of this battle, and they discussed the fact that this uh, village has been uh, uh, entirely annihilated, almost entirely annihilated. It's extraordinarily difficult for anybody hold, and Effectively, it's now in the gray zone. Uh, so. This is by no means any kind of a durable or uh, game changer type of event, but really the most important thing of all. Zane, is that uh, nowhere on the long and the front line has Ukraine actually broken through the first line of defense, even the first line of defense. Russia has a layer defense, two, three layers, sometimes more, uh, built up over many months in preparation for this uh, this offensive, and after two months approximately of extraordinarily intense combat. Uh, and very heavy losses. And I'm, I'm, I'm going strictly on the basis of Western media reports. We don't have to pay any attention to what the Russians are saying. Western media reports have acknowledged that in the past two months, Ukraine has taken extraordinary losses, and they haven't even broken through the first line of defense. By any rational measure, uh, this is a debacle. It's extraordinarily uh, sad and, and, and just tragic to watch Ukrainian soldiers being thrust into this well-prepared and robust Russian defense when they don't have sufficient air cover they have really no air cover at all uh, their artillery uh, is not adequate to meet the level of artillery strikes from the Russian side uh, they haven't had anywhere near the level of training uh, that the uh, Russian forces have had and uh, and they're on the offense which means they're going to just by the nature of combat take significantly higher casualties so they're doing this you know they're they're, they're setting themselves up for higher casualty rates in a ratio of approximately three to one historically uh, with inadequate training and inadequate equipment. And the Wall Street Journal put out an article recently, again, this is not uh, anything other than a pro-NATO, pro-Ukraine media organization in the West, saying that the Western military officials actually knew. They knew in advance that the Ukrainians did not have the means to conduct a successful counter-offensive but they uh, urge them to do it nonetheless because they're fearful uh, that support for this proxy war is, war is going to dry up uh, in in the West, in particularly the United States. So this was, in effect, uh, as they call, an, call it in American football, a hail mary. That's what it was. And they sent uh, tens of thousands of Ukrainian soldiers to the slaughter in order to try to achieve something, some desperate last moment before uh, the West uh, Western public's turn against this heinous war.
0: On July twenty-first, the Tagesschau, I mentioned them once again, did a very interesting segment on the use of cluster munitions that the US recently provided to Ukraine and which Ukraine has been using now in the war. It seemed like a complete justification. In this segment, the reporter firstly stated that Russians are also been using cluster munitions since the start of the war, even on civilians. Secondly, he stated that since Ukraine did not have sufficient conventional ammunition, cluster munitions would help fill that gap. Thirdly, he reasoned that the defense minister of Ukraine provided a plan that committed to not using cluster munitions in the Russian territory and only on the battlefield where a proper accounting would be used where these cluster bombs were dropped so that in the future it would be accurately assist in the demining process. What do you make out of these reasons? Does it justify the use of cluster munitions by Ukraine? And will this weapon be decisive in breaking the Russian defense lines?
1: Uh, First of all, uh, I don't know that it has been established that Russia did use cluster munitions, uh, particularly in civilian areas, uh, prior to uh, the provision of cluster munitions to Ukraine. Uh, My understanding, in fact, is that the Pentagon was asked this question last year uh, by the press, whether or not Russia was using cluster munitions, and the Pentagon's response was essentially that we don't know. Uh, So it's certainly possible that Russia did. Uh, but Russia has not undertaken not to use these cluster munitions. It isn't a party to the treaty that bans them, uh, first of all. And secondly, even if it's true uh, that Russia used cluster munitions, that does not justify the West providing cluster munitions to Ukraine. Uh, you know, we don't have to uh, engage in the behavior uh, that we have condemned uh, in the Russians. And in fact, uh, at some point, uh, I believe it was uh, the prior spokesperson, not the current one, for the For the Biden administration, uh, you know, referred to this as a war crime. So we're going to engage in what the Biden administration characterizes as war crimes because the Russians have done so. Uh, I thought that we in the West were supposed to set a higher standard uh, and that we were supposed to be the champions and defenders of international law and human rights. So uh, whatever the Russians may have done in this regard, and if they've been using cluster munitions in civilian areas, of course, they should be bitterly condemned and people should be held accountable for this in accordance with due process of law. But in no way, shape or form should we, uh, you know, consider ourselves uh, free of any moral or legal obligation uh, to refrain from the use of cluster munitions or providing them to Ukraine.
0: According to a July 31st report by Al Jazeera, Saudi Arabia is preparing, what you also mentioned earlier in the interview, to host a summit to discuss Ukraine President Zelensky's plan for peace. The 10-point peace formula, as it is called, includes the restoration of Ukraine's territorial integrity, the withdrawal of Russian troops, the release of all prisoners, a tribunal for those responsible for the aggression and security guarantees for Ukraine. Russia has not been invited whereas high-level officials from the US, European Union, UK and other countries are expected to attend. How do you view Zelensky's plan? Can it create a basis for peace and help end the war? If not, what would a realistic plan look like? So, this should not be called a peace deal.
1: What Zelensky, a peace deal, as I understand that term and as I think most people understand that term, is two parties bringing an end to a war before there's a decisive defeat of one side or the other and engaging in mutual compromise. And sometimes one side will be forced by circumstances to make more painful compromises than the other, but the key term, the key element of any true peace deal is is compromise. A compromise that results in the cessation of hostilities before one country is completely destroyed and defeated. What Zelensky is doing is basically, his so-called peace deal is a, a demand for Russian capitulation. Russia gets nothing out of that so-called peace deal. That's not a peace deal. Now, maybe you take the position that this is uh, the right thing for the Zelensky government to do, that it's entitled to demand every one of these things. But let's not pretend that this is going to bring about uh, a cessation of the hostilities before one side or the other is defeated. Russia has absolutely no incentive to accept those terms because it amounts to a complete matter of defeat. And here's the reality, Zane, it's absolutely clear. Uh, that there ain't going to be no deal, no compromise involving Russia, where Russia gives up not only the four oblasts that it has uh, annexed under its own laws uh, following the invasion, but Crimea as well. Uh, which for 200 years was part of Russia and is of strategic significance to Russia. That's simply not going to happen, and we should stop pretending that that's going to happen. That one day Vladimir Putin is going to wake up and say, "You know what? I was wrong all along, and I'm going to withdraw all of our soldiers, including those from Crimea. You can have all the land back, and you know, and we're going to uh, let you enter NATO, even though we regard that as an existential threat." Uh, and we're going to not deal with a problem of neo-Nazism in your country, and we're not going to have any deal in place that requires you to honor the Minsk Accords, which you flouted for eight years. This is delusional, Zayn. It's absolutely delusional. And we should stop pretending that this is going to lead to anything other than a continuance of this war, ultimately leading to one defeat. And that defeat is almost certainly going to be Ukraine. This is the height of the irresponsibility. If Mr. Zelensky is truly interested in bringing an end to the suffering of his people, he has to sit down at the table without preconditions and be prepared to make at least a few compromises. And at the very top of that list should be finally Ukraine's agreement not to enter NATO at a bare minimum. And he's not even offering to do that. Uh, So I think that this is uh, just a delusional behavior that will ultimately cause only more suffering to the the, the Ukrainian people who have already suffered so much.
0: Dimitri Skars, independent journalist and lawyer, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Zane. Always a pleasure. And thank you for tuning in today. Please, urge all of our viewers before leaving to join us on our alternative channels on Telegram, Rumble and our podcast called Podbean. The links to these platforms can be found in the description below. And if you're watching our content regularly, make sure to donate just one to five euros a month. If all of our 141,000 subscribers Donate on a regular basis via Patreon, Paypal or bank account 1 to 5 Euros a month. We will be able to sustain our operations for the next 5 years and provide you with daily non-profit news and analysis. I'm your host San Raza. See you guys next time.